active mind of investigation, a kind of exploration, the spirit of exploration, as manifested in this particular quality of investigation. One of the underlying tenets of the practice is the understanding that all of our moment-to-moment experiences are expressions of deeper reality. And therefore, we can glimpse the fundamental laws that govern our lives in anything that is presenting itself, in just what is presenting itself in this very moment, whether it's desired or undesired, whether it's painful or pleasant or neutral, whether it's flamboyant and dramatic or mundane and ordinary, whatever it is, all of it is an expression of these same laws, these same characteristics. And so we can use absolutely anything as a vehicle to understanding. In the teaching, there are two aspects of our experience that are described. The first aspect is that which is true by nature. It's the natural property that's contained in this moment's experience. In seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or mind objects and thinking. So, for example, if you bite down on a hot chili pepper, the natural property in that experience is a burning sensation. The natural property in lowering the foot, in placing, in walking meditation, the variation of qualities of hardness and softness. So that which is true by nature in each moment's experience. The second aspect, the second property of what we experience, is what each person makes up according to their attitudes, according to their assumptions, according to their suppositions. These are based on memory, they're based on belief, they're based on desires. This is our conditioning. So, for example, using the same hot chili pepper, which I happened to bite down upon one lunchtime in Burma, I bit down on the chili pepper, I felt this burning sensation, I considered it quite unpleasant, and that evening in the discourse, I asked Upandita, why is it that Burmese people put chilies in their food? Do they find the burning sensation pleasant? You know, what is the aspect of our conditioning that seems to to make this experience appealing to Burmese people? Well, I found it quite unappealing when it happened to me. And he said, actually, it's quite painful, as far as he could tell, for a Burmese person as well to bite down on a whole chili pepper and to experience the burning sensation but that culturally they had a certain belief that it was quite healthy to do it, to put chilies in the food, and that it would clear the palate and help the digestion and so on. And so because of that, that belief, 
in how useful it would be, they did it and found it quite appealing. <clears throat> so there are these two aspects of experience. That which is the natural property, the burning sensation, and that, and that which is surrounding that based on our conditioning. With a quality that we call wise attention, we get closer and closer and closer to the natural property of an experience. This doesn't mean that we lose our ability to discriminate, to be able to make choices, to be able to have discriminating wisdom, to know that we prefer chilies or not chilies, or so on. But it does mean that we can differentiate between what the direct experience is and all of this other stuff that surrounds it, based on the past, based on projecting it into the future. We can know the difference for ourselves of what we are actually experiencing in the most bare way, most direct way, and all of the beliefs, all of the opinions, all of the attitudes about it. We come to experience our own bodies in this way, in this manner. We find the four great elements of earth, air, water, and fire. When we experience earth, we are experiencing hardness and softness and variations, this, this quality. We experience fire as heat and cold. We experience the air element in its active aspect as movement and in its resisting or passive phase as stiffness or tension. And there's the water element, which is experienced as fluidity and cohesion. In a moment of watching the breath, rising and falling, this is what we are knowing. We're knowing earth, air, water, and fire in its different manifestations. In a moment of lifting up the foot or placing it down, reaching out the arm, getting up, sitting down, this is what we are knowing, actually, are the characteristics of these four qualities. This is our direct experience. This is the natural property. And then we, looked at, we look at the mind. We see consciousness. We see mental factors which color the consciousness. In the Taoist phrase, they call it the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. We see them all. If we can maintain this level of awareness where we are directly tuned into our actual experience, if we can maintain this over a period of time, renewing that attention again and again, then what we see are the universal characteristics which are shared by everything. They're shared by all of life. And these are the characteristics of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and selflessness or egolessness. We see that really there is constant, incessant change 
and that this is complete. We can see our minds as we try to make something solid and secure somewhere. We see how we try to create an illusion of stability in our minds. And so we have thoughts like, I'm this sort of person and I always will be from now until the day I die. Or this is what I believe and it's never going to change. Or I'm going to live this way and then I'm going to leave the retreat and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that and next year I'll come back to the retreat and the year after maybe I'll do it in Burma and then and on and on and on. As though we can have some certainty. And yet these are like, they're almost like stories that we tell ourselves to have some sense of comfort, to give us something to hold on to. Because we can see when we look over time that the actual raw stuff, the basic material of our lives, is constant change. And we see the unsatisfactoriness of this. We see the insecurity and the uncertainty We see how we cannot rely on that which is going to change, that we can't trust created or conditioned reality to provide a lasting stability or security. And we see that this mass of change is essenceless or substanceless, that it is a process that doesn't refer back to someone, some little solid being that is having all of these experiences, that it is a process or a series of processes that are going on according to certain laws, that they're not going on according to our will or according to our desire or according to our wish, that we cannot control them. These are the common or universal characteristics that we can see in any experience. We can't become aware deeply and genuinely of this until we move from the level of conditioning to the level of seeing the natural properties or the natural characteristics of our experience. It is only when we can come to that level and observe it over time that these more basic laws become revealed. Because on the level of conditioning, the level of assumption, the level of belief, the level of judgment, we are not going to have access to direct reality. It is when we are experiencing earth, air, water, and fire, we are experiencing changing mind states as mind states that we can, in fact, come close to seeing these essential laws. How do we do that? How do we come from the level of conditioned belief and thinking and myth and legend and story to the level of direct experience in a penetrating and deep way. In Pali, there's a word, jhana, J-H-A-N-A, which is normally translated as the word absorption. It means a quality of attention that is very fixed. It's strongly focused. 
on an object. And there are two types of jhanas which are talked about, two types of jhanic states or conditions. One is called samatha jhana, <coughs> which is a state of absorption that is attained by focusing on a fixed object. When that happens, when that is cultivated, then the mind becomes very tranquilized and still and peaceful and calm. This isn't particularly the path that we pursue here. But rather we work with cultivating the second type of jhana or jhanic experience, which is the absorption or the ability of the mind to stay focused in observing the natural characteristics and the common characteristics, the universal characteristics of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and essencelessness. So with all mental and physical phenomena, we are that focused, that attentive on these particular qualities. The first of these, the samatha jhana, since it is primarily concerned with tranquilizing the mind, focuses on one particular object. And every time the mind wanders away from that, it's brought back very fixedly over and over again until the mind becomes absorbed into that object. There's a state of union that's achieved. It's very tranquil. It's very blissful. In the second type, which we pursue here, which we cultivate here, there's no fixed object. And we're not particularly concerned with this aspect of union with the object, but rather with developing insight, developing understanding. And so we use all things one can experience at every sense door as objects of attention. Anything that can be experienced directly without having to go through the filter of concept or idea or reasoning. And so anything that can be experienced directly is our object. In doing this kind of practice, cultivating the second type of jhanic experience, we work with understanding five particular qualities that come together and form that depth and degree of absorption, of concentration on the object of the present moment. The first of these in Pali is called vitaka, and it's the aiming process of the mind. It's aiming the mind accurately at the object of observation. It means pointing it or placing it upon the object and to some degree establishing contact with that object. So if I dare to use my eternally favorite example, if you can just imagine a piece of broccoli on a plate, and in your hand you're holding a fork, if you take the fork and you wave it around wildly in the air, it's not going to be very much accomplished. If you take the fork and you aim it directly at the piece of broccoli, it's the first step in being able to manage actually eating it. So in just that way, we take the mind, the attention, and we aim it 
say, at the abdomen. We aim it accurately and directly towards just this moment's experience. And that's the first crucial step in being able to establish really deep understanding. The second jhanic quality in Pali is known as vichara, and that's usually translated as the word investigation, or sometimes as reflection. While that first quality, vitaka, brings the mind to the object and it establishes it somewhat, this quality of vichara establishes it much further. In what I think might have been one of the cutest translations of all time, when Upandita's, when he was first here in this country a few years ago, his translator translated this quality of vichara as rubbing. And he used to say, have your mind rub your belly, which I found quite cute. (laughs) This is what this quality means. Not so much investigate or reflect upon in the way we might use those words in English, but to rub it. Have your mind rub the object of the present moment. Have your mind rub the belly. If we can do that, then the mind doesn't slip off. It doesn't, it doesn't stray off. But it strongly touches in a gentle way what is happening in the moment. It rubs it. It's like the mind impinges on the object. So the example is sometimes used of holding a brass cup in one hand and with the other hand having some kind of a rag and rubbing it, polishing it. When these two aspects are present, when we can hold the attention, we can aim the attention at the moment, and we can have the sense of rubbing it. These are present over and over and over in a succession of moments. If they're present continuously, then what develops out of that is a state of consciousness, which is called viveka. It means secluded. It's mental seclusion. It's silence of the mind or stillness of the mind, which doesn't mean that nothing is happening, but it means that we're not driven. We're not running around looking for contact at the six sense doors. We're not frantic in that effort to have contact. So this is a state of repose, of silence. It means that we're not overcome by the hindrances. If there's some amount of this, this mental seclusion, this silence that's established, then what we experience is a quality of interest, of rapture, of being fully interested in what's going on, actually in this very moment. And sometimes this has different kinds of physiological manifestations because it's a highly energized state. It's a state where all of our energy is coming together. Sometimes the body sways or people have a feeling like they're being lifted off the ground or pushed down or all kinds of things happen. 
It's born out of interest. With this kind of mental seclusion, with this silence, then there's a very liberating kind of happiness, which is, it's like comfort. It's a very sweet and soft happiness. Because the mind becomes soft, it becomes workable, it becomes pliant and light. It's very subtle. This is born out of not reacting all the time. Even as things come and go, we're not pushing away, we're not holding on. So there's a kind of silence in that. And from this comes a state of strong concentration and calm and peace. Those first two factors of aiming the mind and coming close to connecting with the object, rubbing the object of the present moment, are what produce those next three factors. It seems almost simplistic to think of it in those terms, that this is the practice, to aim the attention at the object of the present moment and to come close to it, to establish contact with it, to rub it. And yet it's said that the Buddhist teaching is quite simple and that often in the way he expressed the teaching, he tried to make it so simple that even a seven-year-old child could understand it. And I think maybe as a consequence of that, he seemed to have had quite a large number of seven-year-old fully enlightened disciples. (laughs) It's very simple. The popular or conventional translations of these words as investigation can be a little misleading because I think they imply a kind of reasoning or reflective process. Whereas the actual fact of what creates the power and the depth of understanding in practice seems so simple in contrast. I think it's quite easy for us to want something a bit more grand and elaborate and complex. But to take hold of an object and to rub it does not seem very dramatic. It doesn't seem very grand or important. So then the question becomes, can we actually be that simple? Can we be that humble as to really dedicate ourselves, commit ourselves to over and over and over again aligning ourselves with this simplicity? If we can, if we can do that, it is the door. It is the way to direct personal experience of ultimate reality, as simple as it seems. Because the kind of understanding we are talking about is not born out of reasoning, and it is not born out of argument. It is born out of intuitive opening into what is actually happening. If you can imagine for a moment the kind of darkness that engulfs engulfs a space in the middle of the night when there's no light around, there's no lamp, and there's no source of light that's around. That's like being engulfed 
by ignorance, by not understanding, by delusion. And then the difference in that room when there's a light, when there's a source of light of whatever kind. That is the power of paying attention. When we are in that kind of darkness, then the veil of ignorance also implies a seeking and a grasping after objects, after contact at the six sense doors. And so we become filled, we become enmeshed in seeking this kind of contact. And this is the first hindrance of desire, continually wanting, wanting this and then wanting that and wanting that. When desire is very strong in the mind, it's quite difficult to concentrate because our mind is continually drawn away because of desire for this and desire for that. And then there is, out of this ignorance, out of this darkness, the arising of the second hindrance of anger or aggression or aversion in all of its forms. In the course of an hour of meditation, not to speak of a retreat, not to speak of one's life, how many times do we come across objects that we do not want to have there? which we do not find pleasurable. We do not like them. We find them irritating. We find them annoying. When this is very strong, when it's overwhelming, again, we can't concentrate, we can't focus, because the nature of aversion is to pull away or to push away. And then there is the third hindrance, which is sloth and torpor or drowsiness, sluggishness of mind. When this is very strong, then there's not enough light in the mind, there's not enough freshness in the mind to be able to focus. And so again, we can't concentrate. And then there's the fourth hindrance of restlessness and agitation and worry. When the mind gets scattered and it gets dispersed, said to be a very fickle state of mind because the mind becomes very flirtatious. It flirts with first one object and then another object and then another object looking for a place to find rest and it never finds it. Or we get involved in a lot of memories involving remorse and regret and it's a very agitated state of mind. These are the components of restlessness. Then there's the last hindrance, the fifth, of skeptical doubt, a whole barrage of potential doubts. You doubt yourself, and you doubt the method, and you doubt the circumstance, and you doubt the teachers. If it becomes very strong, it can be quite paralyzing. When those five jhanic factors aren't activated, when they're not cultivated, then it is so easy to get engulfed in the hindrances to stay in the darkness. One antidote or balancing factor that's talked about for the first hindrance of desire is the quality of concentration, of one-pointedness of mind. Because as we develop concentration, 
then one is no longer filled by desires for sights and sounds. There's a certain collectedness of mind. And there's a great happiness in the sense of being still, being one-pointed. It's a happiness that is greater than the happiness experienced by fleeting sense pleasures. And so the allure of these pleasures does not have very great power over us. So one way to be free of very strong desire is to consciously cultivate the power of one-pointedness, of concentration. With a more continuous mindfulness and a deepening of practice, then generally we become more and more interested in what's going on. This is the factor of rapture. It's not possible for a person to be interested in something and to be trying to push it away at the same time, trying to remove it or trying to separate oneself from that experience. And so interest or rapture is the antidote for anger and all of the associated mind states of anger. When the practice is developed and we get filled with the sense of comfort, then it is the antidote for restlessness and anxiety. The comfort doesn't mean that nothing painful happens. It means that the mind is not in a fury about that. The mind is not reacting. It's not continually moving towards and away from objects. It's that kind of feeling of comfort. So this is the antidote for restlessness. When the mind is diligent in trying to aim and trying to be close to the object of the present moment, then this has the power to open up the mind, to expand it, to freshen it, refresh it. This is in contrast to the effect and the power of sloth and torpor that makes the mind feel constricted and withered and dying. In order to open up the mind and get this feeling of expansiveness and refreshment, then accurate aim is really very helpful. And then with that next quality of vichara or rubbing, that impinging quality, when that is strong, then that ensures that the mind will fix on or stick to or settle strongly on an object from moment to moment. If you think about the quality of doubt, it's actually a kind of indecisiveness of mind. The mind is unable to fix on an object, on a particular object. And so it runs off here and it runs off there, considering different possibilities. It's unable to come to a decision, to get settled. So in vichara, this settling quality is strong. This kind of continual running and slipping off of the mind can occur. So here in these five factors, we have the antidote for all five hindrances. And the five factors are born out of the first two of aiming the mind, coming close to, connecting to the object. When we have these two 
skills of aiming the mind and rubbing the object, and there is mindfulness present, then what is born out of that is intuitive insight, is discerning insight. So it's that simple. It's useful to understand a little bit what supports the development of this skill, what creates the possibility of developing this kind of investigation. What's talked about a lot as a support for this is the balancing of the controlling factors, of the controlling faculties, which Joseph spoke about a few weeks ago, faith and energy and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. In a long-term sense of bringing balance to the mind, we talk about balancing faith and wisdom. If faith is out of balance, if it's stronger than this quality of intelligence or wisdom, then one can be very gullible or might just get carried away by feelings of devotion. Faith is a quality that has us drawn near to what is going on and has us open up, but not necessarily in a wise way. If knowledge or intelligence or wisdom is an excess of faith, then the teaching is that it might lead to a kind of manipulative mind or cunning mind or hypocritical mind where there is an understanding but not that heartfelt drawing near. And so over time we work with bringing these into balance. In a more immediate sense of the meditation practice, We work a lot with balancing the qualities of energy and concentration. We work continuously with balancing these two factors. And as we can, bring them more and more into balance. A genuine and deep investigation can grow easily. There are times in the practice, many times in the practice, when one gets very disheartened. It's like mindfulness seems to have disappeared altogether or practice seems to have gone from bad to worse or from good to awful. And you think, well, what happened? You know, it was all so crisp and clear yesterday and now it seems really sloppy and I can't note and I can't find any objects and it's really terrible. And it's easy to get more and more depressed and discouraged and disheartened. And so energy gets really low. What we try to do at those times is to remember why we are here, to develop inspiration, to develop interest, to develop rapture. We can do that by remembering what we are connecting to in connecting to this form. We are connecting to a very ancient wisdom. And that it is not easy, but it is also not trivial. And so to rouse the courageous effort to persevere. 
We try to rouse energy by trying to focus the mind very clearly on the object of attention to take a greater interest in just this very moment and then this one and then this one. If we can do this, if we can really look carefully at what is happening just right now, then there's a clarity and lucidity which comes out of that and the energy comes up. There are times in the practice when there's too much concentration for the amount of energy that's present. And so what happens to begin with is a kind of very pleasant dreaminess. We're kind of dreaming away and it's very nice and we're peaceful. But there's not enough energy to be accurate, to have clarity in what we're looking at. And so we get more and more dreamy and more and more dreamy and more and more dreamy until finally we fall asleep. And what we try to do in those times is not to lose the depth of concentration, but rather to raise the energy, to do more walking, to do more noting, to do the things that will raise energy. Then there are all those times in the practice when the yogi has some great experience, some perhaps unusual or different experience, and becomes very exhilarated and full of interest and full of energy, full of rapture. And there's this huge surge of interest, almost to the point where the person becomes over-enthusiastic. This is the mind state of, wow, I got it at last. You know, this is so great. And you look radiant and you feel like you're floating six feet above the ground and it's really wonderful. But there's just too much energy. With all of that energy going on, it's very hard for the mind to concentrate on just what is happening right in this very moment in the mind and body. It's like the mind will slip off. It won't be able to hit the target. It's too powerful. There are many things that we try to do to balance out this situation. One is actually to use some reflection. It's to understand that there's a kind of energy overflow situation going on and that it's not going to be very useful. And so then you think, well, really, is there any point in trying to hurry along this process? It's going to unfold at its own rate, no matter what. And so calm down, just cool out. Work with being present with just what is. Then we try to limit the objects that we're looking at to really narrow down the field instead of trying to pay attention to everything that is happening. But to get simple, to concentrate more fully, look more closely at just a few things. And then we work with equanimity, with understanding that the true essence of the practice is to have no preferences not to prefer this wild, mad sense of exhilaration and wonderful experience 
over the knee pain and over the sleepiness, but rather to be present with whatever is. In this way, we can soothe the mind, we can cool out the energy. And it's constantly changing. Sometimes there's this lack of energy, there's the discouragement and the disappointment. And we have to work sometimes quite hard to remember a sense of purpose and to renew the energy. And sometimes there's this over-enthusiasm and the overflow of energy, or even overconfidence, not really being careful anymore about watchfulness, getting kind of reckless or complacent. And so we work with calming down, cooling out. We do it constantly. If we can bring these into balance for some period of time, or relatively easily, then what comes out of that is the quality of investigation. It's born very naturally out of this balance. We learn to aim the mind to bring it close to the object. The Buddha had these two different disciples. His chief disciple, Sariputra, and second from him, Moggallana. Sariputra and Moggallana were childhood friends. They entered the order of monks very close in time to one another. For that time, where, as you've probably noticed from all of the stories, people tended to get fully enlightened very easily upon hearing a phrase or hearing two phrases of the Dharma spoken. For that time, Sariputra was somewhat slow in his development. It took him two weeks to become fully enlightened. (laughs) It only took Moggallana one week. It said that the reason it took Sariputra relatively long was because he had a certain kind of analytical or questioning mind, where every time he had an experience in meditation, he had to examine it from a thousand different angles. You know, like, what does this mean, and what does it imply, and how does it connect to that, and what's the relationship to this? Rather than letting go of it and moving on, just being with the next moment and the next. Whereas Moggallana had more of this ability to focus on just this moment, and then this, and then this. So it took him just a week. At one point, around the time that Upandita was here, three years ago, we talked about forming two clubs. One was the Sariputra Club, and the other was the Mogalana Club. People who had the tendency to try to extrapolate and form opinions and use the analytical reasoning process in meditation were going to be members of the Sariputra Club. And the people who concentrated on aiming the mind at the object of the present moment and rubbing, connecting 
We're going to be members of the Mogolana Club. For us, in this time, it tends to take more than two weeks. And so it is important to understand that the quality of investigation, which has so much power to really light up the mind, to light up our lives, is not a thinking process. It is not a question of sitting down and thinking about things. It is not a question of drawing conclusions. It is all a matter of moving from our conditioning, our desires, our opinions, our ideas about things, through the power of concentration and aiming the mind to the level of direct experience, really knowing the natural properties of this body and this mind in each moment. And through that, to these laws, to understanding for ourselves impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and essencelessness or egolessness. And that it is so simple. It is not in any way an abstract accomplishment. It is something that we are doing in each and every moment as we are practicing here. This is the quality of investigation. It's coming close to just what is happening and having the patience and the humility to do it over and over and over again. Another of the factors that is said to be a supporting condition for this kind of investigation, this power of investigation, to be strong, is said to be the quality of really wanting it, which I find quite interesting. That just to really want it, to have a commitment to it, to have a sense of purpose about it, will bring it to life. So we can use the balancing of our energy, our concentration, faith and wisdom, and a sense of purpose, really wanting it, to create the ground or the conditions where it's available to us and where we can use it very strongly. Let's sit for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.